to Flower Hour. A podcast completely dedicated to baking. I'm Amanda in Los Angeles. And I'm Jeremiah in Sacramento. Hello? Hello, is there anyone out there? Am I all alone in the world? Do you have butter? Oh my gosh, is that you, Jeremiah? It's me! Woohoo! <laughs> Let's connect. Oh my gosh, that human connection is is uh, always welcome, but especially now. It's so great to hear your voice. Yours as well. What would we do without this technology that's enabling us all to stay connected during another week of a strange, strange time? We would cry a lot or maybe cry, just cry more. (laughs) I think my plants would truly become like friends that would talk back at this point. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, this is probably too much information, but I told my mom on the phone the other day, I said, oh, my gosh, I just realized that one of my trees looks just like a giraffe. And she's like, you've been in your house too long. (laughs) I think you're losing it. So then I started teasing her. I said, oh, I think it's talking to me. So, yeah, maybe that's what would happen if we didn't have technology start talking to our giraffe trees. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. This is, this is one more reason why we're friends. Anyway, what have you been doing to keep yourself occupied and busy and connecting and, and living life? So after we chatted last, I had another pop-up for pickup where I, I sold Portuguese pastries and it was just before Easter. And it was the, I mean, it's crazy where we're in this crazy time where a lot of things have shut down. And yet for me, it was the most, um, the most I've ever baked in my life. And it was the most orders I'd ever had. And the response and the sense of community, it was just the superlative, whatever word. It was the most I've ever had experienced. And which meant I was wrestling 50 pounds of, of dough of, of Portuguese sweetbread dough by hand. Like I did it all by hand and I don't know how I did it. I, my dad was like, so you're going to be up all night, right? I'm like, no, I've got this all organized. I, I, I've got a plan, but with one oven and two hands. And I mean, I was, I was up all night. I was up through the night and um, it was that thing where like, just, just one step at a time. If if I just keep my brain there, I'll be okay. If I start to think of like when people start to have to show up and then I'll go nuts, but like just one at a time. And, and it was, um, it was really special. And um, I, I, I'm so, I don't know, I'm rambling and rambling because it was a really, really um, big challenge, but a really fun and um, something I'm very proud of. Oh, you should be. And, and yeah, you, I mean, with one oven, you can only do so much. You just plug away until it's yes. done. How exciting. And I think it's cool to see in this weird time, what rises to the top. Like last time I talked about my daughter's birthday and you were doing this primarily for people celebrating Easter, it seems like. And so the celebrations, the holidays, they keep coming and, and they're almost even more special than I think ever before. So that's really wonderful. Thank you. And another thing to celebrate is you've started to share some recipes on Instagram and they look delightful. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. So last time we talked, I was kind of like in a weird place with baking. I wasn't quite sure how it would look for me during this time just yet. And I'd been sick and just blah, blah, blah. Anyway, if you listened, you know. So I started thinking about, okay, if this is not the time for me to necessarily try to make money. Cause at first I was like, how do I replace the income for all the classes I've lost and book sales and, and things that I had planned on doing. And then I thought, no, like that's just not where my head is at. It just didn't, it didn't feel right in my heart for me. I'm not saying that's how it should be for everyone, but for me, it just felt very strange and it was not motivating to figure out how to shift gears in that way. And so I thought, What I really want to do is figure out some sort of way to give back, big or small. I was like, just how can I do something of value, not even give back necessarily, but do something that has worth in this time. And and I have been kind of on the sly working on another cookbook, nothing um, too set in stone yet, but 
but definitely working on some recipes and things, but I wasn't super attached to, you know, this has to be in the book, this has to be in the book or, or anything really hardcore just yet. And so I thought I have these recipes, people are baking a lot. Let me just give them away. So instead of saving them for a book for the future, I thought I'm just going to make this stuff that I've already figured out and kind of honed and made sure it's a good solid recipe and follow my craving because I don't want to bake stuff and then waste it. So I'm like, okay, what do I want to feed my family? What do I want to eat? Kind of flip through the recipes and go, okay, I'll give this one away. And so it's been really fun just kind of with no agenda other than saying, hey, this is really delicious. I hope you want to make it and enjoy yourself and and seeing people be so excited to try something new. Um, so it made me feel like I could kind of in a weird way, take control of my world for right now. And so it's been a great gift to me and I'm so happy that people are enjoying it. Oh, it looks delicious. Well, today we have another amazing guest. We haven't interviewed someone in a while and I'm so thrilled to that we get to host your good friend and someone who I feel like is a good friend, although I've never even met her. Yes, we're having Rose on. She's I call her Rosie, Rose Lawrence. Um, she's coming on. She's a pastry chef. She is the owner, operator of Red Bread. She makes incredible, basically everything, because as the name you would imagine, is it's very bread heavy. So I feel like bread is one of the first ways I came to know her. But then I bought pies from her for Thanksgiving. And is it that one with the hot sauce? Yes, oh. yes. So a couple of years ago, I bought an apple pie from her and she put, she made her own hot sauce, of course, because she's just so extra that way. She made this hot sauce that she put in. So there was just the, a little bit of heat, which we're used to heat, if you think about it, with apples in the cinnamon. So there's right. that like little bit of warmth already. So then the extra heat made total sense. It was such a pleasant, I mean, just one of my most favorite pies I've ever had. And of course, she brings her bread knowledge and use of specialty flowers, heritage flowers, locally milled flowers into everything she does. So the crust was this whole wheat crust, which some people hear whole wheat and think, Ooh, tough. And it was as tender as tender comes. I mean, it was amazing. So she makes wonderful pies. She's also the head pastry chef at Rosso blue an Italian restaurant very, very high-end Italian restaurant here in Los Angeles. She teaches classes on a regular basis in person, and now she's transitioned online with that. She, gosh, it's it's hard to even list off everything about Rose. She's been she a lawyer before. She's been an actor before, which is interesting because we have another guest, and I've had lunch with the two of them at the same time before, and they're just powerhouses, Jesse Sheehan. If you remember the vintage baker, she was also an actor and a lawyer before she became a professional wow. pastry chef. Isn't that weird? So that's crazy. Anyway, she's just this really dynamic person. And I, I'm so excited for every everyone, me, you, anyone listening to get to learn from her and get to know her a bit more because she's just magic on earth. Okay, I am beyond excited to welcome my friend, pastry chef, red bread extraordinaire, pastry consultant, da 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 da. She is a woman of many, many hats. Rose, welcome to Flower Hour. Hi, I am so, so, so pumped to be here. I am, I'm such big fans of you guys. So it's really fun to be in this little threesome. <laughs> yeah. And I felt like you guys already knew each other because I think you internet know each other. So now you kind of have deepened your relationship as well. You podcast know each other. Oh man, podcasts know each other. That's real intimacy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I listened to your interview on the Sourdough podcast, and that was a fantastic interview. Like you guys, I feel like I really got to know you and your history. And so I feel like for anyone out there who wants a real in-depth, like step-by-step -step interview with Rose, that's a good one to check out. That was a really fun podcast to do. Um, the guy who runs it is a uh, 
a, a longtime friend of another friend and he reached out and we just really hit it off. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, I mean, he just let me get really, really excited. So I had a lot of fun with that one too. So we're coming to you during this whole quarantine. And the first thing we want to know is how are you doing? Um, I, I'm good. I, you know, I think that I've gone through so many emotions, like as just a human, not (laughs) wearing any kind of hat that I think all of us are sort of like in the emotional soup of being anxious, being afraid, not knowing about your loved ones, um, finding really joyful moments, doing things you've always wanted to do, just kind of balancing such a fast flip of a new normal, um, I think it's really been a challenge to test for change. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I land on gratefulness because, um, it can be really hard out there for a lot of people right now. And, uh, I, I just, yeah, I'm, it's just, it's, it's just amazing. I feel like it's, it's hard to encapsulate what this time is and will be for, uh, for some time. <laughs> We're all just kind of really in the present and living it now. So I was curious, and I thought our listeners would be curious to know too, what your days look like now. Like what does that shift physically meant for you? Not so much the emotional side, but just, you know, before you were teaching, I know on a regular basis, and I'm sure I'll leave out stuff, but I know you were teaching a lot of classes and obviously in-person classes are gone. And you were working for Rosso Blue as a pastry chef. So what does your day look like now? Um, yeah, I mean, my, my days changed really abruptly when this happened. I was not only doing uh, those things, like you said, but I was doing collaborations and traveling all over the nation. So I was actually doing a lot of back and forth that came to an abrupt halt. Um, now... My days look like a lot of uh, live stream classes where I am mostly sharing, uh, you know, free uh, my knowledge about sourdough and different approaches to it and focusing on your senses and ways not to waste things because at the same time that we have people home, we're running out of things. So uh, it's a different way of teaching things. Um, I've been able to flip some of the clients who uh, did want in-home lessons to online. So it's really amazing what, uh, sort of every, every instance, what we get to find the technology can make available to us if we harness it. Um, so that's been really incredible to watch. Um, I am still making celebration cakes. Uh, I really pushed my, the format of my business, uh, to do less bread right now, even though that's really necessary. Like I don't have the ingredients to support that. And the supply chain is a little disrupted. Uh, but when I sat down and like thought about what was important to me in a time of stress or plague, it, it was cake because I think cake is so much about um, celebration and joy and hope and marking a day. And I think those things are even more important right now. Um, so I've been making a lot of cakes, which has been really meditative, as I'm sure you would agree, Amanda. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, I've been going on hour long walks with my dogs and I've been just kind of sitting down and like seeing how I can help others and push things that I want to do ahead. And again, just really try and like take my head and think of this as, um, where are the gifts in all the uncertainty? I love that perspective so much. And I love (laughs) that you mentioned technology and how you're using it as a tool because for me, and I, and I know this from you just, just as hanging out with you as my friend, is we appreciate natural things so much, whether it's like yeah. actual nature or it's getting our hands into the dough and just really physical contact kind of living in a very physical world. But I think it's cool to see kind of the marrying of the two right now where it's like mm. – it, it almost feels like in this weird time, technology is less at odds with what we're doing and more in sync. It's like a vehicle to be natural in a, in this really weird way. I don't know. I think I think that's really interesting. I like to see the ways that people are 
combining the two? Yeah, I think that it before there was so much about technology that was like composed and now we crave connection and there's a lot more sort of people presenting themselves as they are. <laughs> um and I I like that honesty is it's so it's so refreshing. People are making mistakes and they're like, Well, I know I have the time to start another live stream and tell you what I learned. <laughs> so like who cares? You know, like I think there's this and there's this wonderful um, appreciation, at least for me, like even when there's only a few people who are like interacting with me live, I'm like, oh, it's so juicy, this human connection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I think that, uh, you know, we undervalue so many of these things in our normal over rushed lives, like, like human touch and greeting each other and um you know we're not seeing any of the first right now for good reason but I feel like my neighbors are actually saying hi to each other now <laughs> there's so many more people I see in the park across the street from me who are just like spending time outside not in an activity which is like beautiful in itself. Um, I am trying to achieve also this lifelong dream of becoming a really good gardener or at least not killing things. So that's, that's where I've taken all that like need for sensory and tactile, um, uh, connection that would normally be at my bench with all these different ingredients and different produce to uh, being outside with uh, dirt and the plants before they're harvested. And it's been, it's been great to kind of discover these different things that are coming out of this time. Amazing. And I, I was really struck when you were telling the story about how you shifted your businesses and your focus. And I, but I would think in that time, like I can, well, I, I just want to hear about your mind frame, mindset during that point because, of course, there's a sense, there's got to be a sense of loss. All of a sudden, everything's gone, but you seem to be able to like completely shift your paradigm immediately to in this into this place of gratitude and a place of giving and serving yourself and others. And I think that's something that not all of us would be able to do right away. And I mean, what was your mindset during that point? And can you offer any advice if anyone who else is struggling to turn their business, their, their life into a more positive, um, path? Um, well, it, it, it wasn't immediately at all. I think, you know, when, when everything ended, I, you know, I mourned, I grieved because you put a lot of energy into your plans. I mean, I, I'm a person who like, if I'm going to do something, I'm doing it at 110% or I'm not. Um, and I don't, I don't know any other gear shift. Um, so, uh, yeah, there was, I, when everything came to a halt, I, spent a couple days like on my sofa, just stunned and quite sad and crying quite a bit <laughs> as an emotional human. Um, but I realized after a while that um, what I mostly was feeling was kind of powerless. And I suppose I've had some good people in my life who have managed to instill in my head that even when I am feeling my heart's weariness, that the solutions are not to stay in place and do nothing, but to expand, to become more open. Because if you have loss, like you'll only feel that loss longer if you're closed off. But if you open yourself up to more things, you'll find that change easier to bear because it's going to come anyway. Um, and even though I can say that, like, you, even if you know it, you still have to go through that. So um, it, it took some time. Um, but when I started reaching out to more people in my industry to see, like, what could be done to feed people? How could I help use my skills previously as um, working in law to help, like, advise different groups or push different agendas for lobbying. Um, it, it became a much more dynamic time for me. It made me feel like it wasn't about things ending so much as things shifting um, and that shifts provide opportunities uh, if you can find them. And 
you know, I think that my business uh, going back to just doing products is, is less, I mean, lucrative for sure than like teaching and, and interactive, which is, you know, what I love so much about what I do more than anything is like, is being with someone and showing them something, uh, what was a challenge. Um, and I'm grateful that it worked because it's, it's, also just not possible for so many other people who maybe have larger businesses and more moving parts. So I think it's very, I think every, I think every case right now is, is individual. And I think, um, you just have to, uh, I don't know. I've spent so much time like thinking about this statement by Pascal that all human suffering comes from the inability to sit in a room alone and do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> And here we are. <laughs> and here we are. And so um, I've just been like this. This sentence has been rattling around in my in my head for so much, and and just trying to think of like so often myself. Like, and I think a lot of people we we long for some time to be slow, and it's not available, and so it becomes this life longing that's never achieved. And right now, like we have that time, and it's so scary because it's different. And if, if you can kind of say some of these things to yourself and like, think about change a little differently, like every day, just a little, I think it slowly prepares your heart to engage in that change. And that was definitely a journey for me in the, in the last couple of weeks. Um, and we'll continue to be so because we, we don't know what is really going on. And, uh, I mean, again, there's something really beautiful about the fact that, like, we're such a fractured world usually, and and this is really pulling us all together, and we're kind of like working out that that human psyche, and I I think we just all have to like take steps and really still believe uh, in the future and what we want to accomplish, and maybe think about things that are like more layered in terms of what they can accomplish, like if you are in the restaurant industry and you uh, were in it because you were making money, maybe this is like, okay, well I'm out. <laughs> but maybe you were in the restaurant industry and you were like, I, I love feeding people. And, and now you've gotten this profound ability to truly, truly feed people in need. And when you reopen, if you reopen, God willing, you reopen, you, uh, maintain that program. Like there's so many beautiful things right now that I hope people maintain because they're necessary now, but they're always necessary and they're always the right thing to do. And it's not that much more work. And that's sort of my, my big hope, which has always been kind of a part of Red Bread's mission is to like give back to the community. So, um, I have a lot of hope for people. I think people are figuring it out. I think it's just, um, I think it's a wash with a lot of other emotions. I love that That's you're. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you're focused even in this time about giving back and like, I knew that you would be because that's just part of your DNA. Um, and I love that about you. And in that same spirit, I feel like with your, Access to information about, you know, how things work legally and then also understanding the restaurant side so much. Do you have anything that we, Jeremiah and I, or our listeners can do to support the restaurant industry right now? We have professionals listening, but we have a lot of home bakers listening, but I guarantee everyone listening eats at restaurants and, you know, <laughs> it's like everyone eats at a restaurant. So um, what do you recommend? Cause it is a little confusing sometimes of like, what's the best thing to do is, you know, ordering as much takeout as you can afford important signing petitions, donations, just where should people put their, their energy and if they have it money? Um, I think that, uh, we'll start with like sort of indirect and direct, um, interventions, I guess, like, um, I am so glad that people have uh, been on board about like restaurants still being super important um, because they are, there are these hearths that we still gather around even, even virtually. Um, uh, petitions are, are problematic because things get flooded and mostly um, like interns 
<laughs> read those. I remember reading a lot of petitions in law school. Uh, what really sort of gets messages across is when the phone lines are completely jammed. So if you want to participate politically, the best thing to do is call your congressman up and just make it something you do every day. And it, it doesn't have to um, just be about restaurant issues right now. You could call and be like, restaurants need relief essential workers need uh, paid relief after this, like just make your voice heard. That's why we have those contact points. So that's a way to get directly involved in citizenship and governance that um, people can always do uh, and, and don't do enough of because um, they're worried it won't matter or uh, someone else is doing it. But, um, you know, every, every voice counts. So, uh, you know, you should definitely participate as much as you can. Uh, and then in terms of like, how can you support restaurants directly? It's, it's tricky because, um, you know, I definitely think if you can afford to order a lot of takeout, um, order as much as you can, uh, try to make it from places that are immediately around you rather than necessarily your favorite restaurant. Um, because if you're traveling, then you're still out. So, you know, I think there's this balance of like taking the shelter in place orders um, seriously so that we can curb this so we can get back to normal faster, you know, um, but supporting your neighborhood places are going to be an incredible way to order takeout and um, get it with minimum impact on the workers and yourself. Uh, I also help with any fees for delivery. Um, a lot of restaurants um, here in Los Angeles and some in New York have been turned into um, just soup kitchens or grocery stores uh, and they take orders ahead of time. So if you're not finding um, the essential items that are like not been restocked on the shelves, like toilet paper and flour. <laughs> um, restaurants have these because their supply lines are still functioning because of backstock. And so orders are still coming through, flour is still arriving there, even though they aren't making the orders because they have no one to feed. So they're turning into these grocery stores. So um, there are a couple citywide lists. I know LA just put out one um, through Black Book LA or something that um, is all the restaurants that have been turned into grocery stores. So, uh, you know, just do a couple internet searches and see what has happened in your area because restaurants are trying to be flexible. And that's where I've been able to get flour, eggs, butter, sugar in this time when I can't get it anywhere else. And you don't have to be having worked in the industry to access those resources. Um, so like, that's the only reason I can still make cakes right now. Um, because otherwise, you know, all those gluten allergies just disappeared overnight. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, that is funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think those are the best ways to um, to support restaurants, you know. And if you know someone who used to work in a restaurant, like if you have friends, like just check in on them. Um, you know, send them a meal, uh, send them a card, because uh, I think that you know most of them are working sort of on that poverty line and. Um, resources are rolling out for them, but a lot of it is just very lonely. These are people who were all used to working together, um, like, you know, 30, 40 of us, like, crammed into a little submarine and, like, laughing and joking and being right up against each other's shoulders all night. I think that kitchen people, like, need people a little more than regular people. So, yeah, call them up. Say you love them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, tell us about how you became a professional pastry chef. What was that path like? Um, I became a professional pastry chef. Um, I don't know, like in hindsight, I'm like, oh, I guess this is what I am. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that when you find something that is, is meant to be a part of you, whether it's a, a job or 
um, a passion hobby or something, it, it feels like you can trace a line all the way back to something. And um, for me, uh, I, I my whole life I wanted to be an actor, and then I did that for a while, and then I ended up going to law school, and then I became a pastry chef. So at the tender age of 35, I've had like three major careers. <laughs> um, but all of them felt like even astounding to me until I started making pastry. And I never really had a sweet tooth growing up, but my parents um, ran a a restaurant and a yoga studio that had a garden attached it's, would be so hip now. Um, but this was in the 1970s in Florida and you, they were like the, you know, crazy hippies. Um, and the restaurant was called the good earth and almost everything came from the garden, which my dad maintained and my mom kind of ran the kitchen. And, um, just from the beginning, like I was around food, uh, you know, I was too small to really like remember any of the specifics there. And they were very health conscious. So like, you know, at most, I think the pastries were like really hearty granola bars <laughs> or like a carrot cake, um, which is still one of my favorites. And my babysitter for the most part was like the herbs and the sunflowers. I would just be like dropped off in the garden that my mom could see out the kitchen window. And, and that's where I would hang out with my brother for most of the day when I was very young. And, um, my, uh, parents, uh, like people would ask because my dad became really well known for gardening and people would ask my mom what the best thing in the garden was. And she would tell them it was the rose in her garden. So if they could figure out that it was me, they got free dessert. So like that was set up before I had any inkling of like what language was that if you found me, you got a treat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then when my parents got divorced and we moved around a lot, my birthday just happened to fall on uh, the first day of school. And uh, it was always a new school. So my mom taught me how to make cookies when I was like four. And then every time I went to a new school, I would just bring a lot of cookies and be like, it's my birthday. (laughs) (laughs) And sort of like steal the day. And so like food and like specifically sweets were always in my life as like a means of like immediate connection um, and a way to like make friends or make someone happy, make someone laugh with the like discovery. Um, And when I was graduating from uh, well, when I, when I went to law school and realized that I was very different than most of the people I would be going to school with, <laughs> um, I, I realized I could either have a terrible time in law school by like just being kind of loud and fun and the outsider, or I could become the president of my class and make everyone like me. <laughs> so I did that one. And, uh, like 10 other people ran against me. So I figured the only real thing that we could differentiate each other, uh, differentiate myself from the 10 other people was if I made a thousand cupcakes. So I did that. <laughs> uh, obviously. <laughs> obviously. And each one said vote and had a little check mark and it worked. <laughs> That's amazing. So like, it just felt like I always like relied on this, like, ace that I had that I I didn't realize I had, but that came very naturally. And when I uh, was graduating uh, law school, I ended up having a lot of like health issues. Um, um, And I was told by doctors about all these different things to give up, which are pretty much the classics, like sugar, flour, butter, (laughs) like everything that I like is me now. And I, I didn't understand because I didn't eat them in this country very much to begin with. And I had grown up in Ecuador um, after my, fam- uh, my parents closed the restaurant. We moved to Ecuador. Um, I traveled a lot in Europe. I'd eaten so many carbs in all these places. In Ecuador, growing up for like 10 years, it was just like your breakfast was a sweet bun with chocolate milk. And that was your dinner also. And your feast was lunch. So I... I didn't understand how these things could be harming me when in this country, I didn't even really eat them because they didn't like taste very good. Like bread here was not like bread in Europe or Latin America. And even without like knowing a lot, I could tell the difference just from my senses, just from eating it. Um, 
And because I had just gone through this like rigorous analytical training, I, I didn't take all these restrictions from my doctor lying down and decided to do a lot of research into, well, what was, what was bread? What is bread? How do we define it versus other countries defining it? Because what I did in law school was international law. So pretty much all I did was comparative um, systems and approaches to development and legislation. So it was it was very much a lawyering of the world of flour and pastry. I like pulled out every resource I could find. I read 10 of them at once. I pulled definitions in terms of arts and like just tried to really understand what the sort of um, agenda was with each uh, places telling of what food was. And it was kind of alarming um, how much different America's version of what food is than the rest of the world. Um, and so I, I started to make things um, and, and a lot of things I'd already made before, like pie and cake and, and cookies. Um, but I didn't want to eat those every day. And I, I became really obsessed with this idea of um, bread because it was like the big no-no in terms of like my health crisis immediately and also sort of everyone's health crisis at the time like this was 2011 and it was like the height of the like oh my god don't even let me look at bread you know like it's so bad for me um and there wasn't any like sourdough or whole grain anything in uh in Los Angeles at least and there weren't that many around the nation now it's exploded um and I knew a lot of whole grains because my parents had been the, been these hippies. Um, and so I was familiar with a lot of these things that were otherwise strange. But I'd never made bread before. Uh, but it seemed so, like, deceptively simple. So I made bread for the first time. And I had studied it so hard up to that point that I... I had a success on my first try, which is not true for everyone, but it was such a seminal experience even before it came out. Like the minute I put my hands into like the wet, sticky mass, I just like knew I was going to be doing this forever. It just instantly felt perfect and like a home. And, and still to this day when I teach, right when we mix the first batch I tell people like, this is the moment you're going to know if you put your hands in that, in that mess, that shaggy mess. And, and you think, Oh, this is sticky. This might not be for you. And that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're like, Oh, this feels so good. Welcome to the try. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I made like, I made one loaf of bread and then the next day I made 13 loaves of bread. And then the next day I made like 48 loaves of bread and very quickly, like all my friends were bread. So I, um, I wanted to take advantage of this because I was having friends over and they would see my stacks of bread and they were like, Oh my God, can I have some? And I was like, Oh, I thought no one was eating bread. And they're like, yeah, but this looks different. Uh, so <laughs> I, what I had in terms of like a legal degree and having set up some businesses for like, artists and stuff like that throughout law school and formed a business for myself. And I did it fairly rapidly because I was able to be the one who like legally signed off on everything for myself. Um, and again, that was such a learning curve because it was like, you, so many people are so talented and have so many gifts to share. And it's such a massive hurdle to, uh, traditionally work with lawyers and business permitting and everything else. Um, and a lot of the forms are actually really approachable. And so like you're held back through fear and not understanding. So, um, I was really excited, um, to help other people like do the same thing for a long time. That was part of my business also. Like if, if, if baking and starting a business wasn't enough, I was like on the side, if you want to start a business, let me know because it's outrageous how much it costs you otherwise. <laughs> um, so yeah. And then I, I started making one bread, one cookie and, uh, and a marshmallow, uh, without corn syrup, um, just with honey and like different jams I put up and we got into the farmer's market and then we did a Kickstarter for red bread. And then 
And then suddenly, I guess I was a, a professional pastry chef through like sheer willpower and love and enthusiasm and like dedication. And it, it felt like so many things that, um, I had thought were very disconnected were suddenly at my command to like talk clearly with people and help them understand not only why this would taste so good, but like why it was important beyond the moment the bread went into your mouth that this supported a local farmer and a local miller. And it was a, a time honored practice that allowed you to connect deeply with a culture that was like your birthright. Um, so things are always very meaningful to me. And I felt like having had all these experiences, um, it, all, it all coalesced. And the most magical thing for me in that journey was um, my mother passed away in 2012. So like halfway between sort of like the journey of me becoming like who I am now, um, at least professionally. And she came into the bakery shortly before she passed away and wanted to make bread with me. And I was like, so excited to like teach her how to make bread. And like, I went through the whole process and I was very like, you know, proud and like, Oh, she'll so be so impressed with how much I know. And she was so sweet and patient. And then at the end, after making all this bread with me and she was great at it. And I was so, uh, I thought I was this incredible teacher that I had guided her through her first time to such stupendous results. And then on the way home, when we were walking, she told me about how she ran the bread program at the restaurant and made uh, 40 loaves a day for seven years. And, and they didn't, I don't remember them because they didn't sell them at the restaurant. They gave them all away. What neighborhood who couldn't come to the restaurant like because it was too expensive because we lived in like a poor area area and I just like cried and I was just like how could you let me show you how to make bread when you when you knew <laughs> and she was like well it wasn't about that it was about like seeing you do this and I was just like I don't know it was such a beautiful experience because I was like what a mom. <laughs> Wow, that's magical. And the fact that she was serving her community like you are now as well, and as you have throughout your careers, like that sort of, wow, that, I have goosebumps all over. Yeah, oh, like it's, it's your heritage and yeah. you didn't even know it and it's your destiny, you know, like I love the idea even back to when you were talking about if you can find the rose in the garden, you'll get dessert. And it's still, you know, I still feel that way. I'm like, if I can see my friend Rose, I know it's going to be a delicious time. So yeah, I always have a treat in my bag. Yeah, yeah. It was just like, it's your destiny, your heritage. And, and as a mother too, hearing that story, all you want is to, you know, prepare your kids for life and then see them be who they are. So I'm sure that was just as special for her getting to learn from you in that moment, just like to see you being your wonderful self was as, as good as it ever gets as a mother. It's, it's amazing. Okay. Um, hold on. Are you a Virgo <laughs> or a Leo? Um, I, I am a Virgo because I'm right. Like, I guess the cusp is on the 24th. So I was supposed to be born earlier. And then I like, hung out for a while. <laughs> so I should have been a Leo, I guess, but then mm -hmm, I was a Virgo. Mm -hmm. And my sister is flipped. My younger sister, two years younger, she was supposed to be, we were basically supposed to be each other's due dates and then flipped. She was supposed to be born on my due date and ended up being born on the 21st. So like she's a Leo. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm getting massive Leo vibes from you. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so I just feel like, you know, I'm just stars, whatever, whatever that means on any given day. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, okay. So as a pastry chef, one of the favorite things that I love learning from people who do this professionally is how do you come across your new recipes? How do you develop those? Do you have a specific like step process, like first I come up with the flavors, then I come up with the textures, then I come up like, what is your rhythm when, you know, say you're in Rosso Blue and they're like, let's do some new desserts. Like, what do you do? Um, my rhythm, I, I'm a book person. 
You know, I, when, when Rosa Blue especially actually is a really great example because um, they are an Italian restaurant in downtown Los, An- An- Los Angeles. Uh, Los, Los Angeles. Angeles. Yes. Los Angeles. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've never, like so far in my career, I have been mostly working in like California fresh nouveau cuisine from the market. So there's a bit of like an acceptance of like anything goes because you have so many different cultures here and our produce is just, it's, I mean, it's sinful how much, how much bounty we have. Um, and, uh, uh, Rosso Blue being Italian and especially with, um, Chef Steve Sampson having all of his memories coming directly from sort of Northern Bologna area has meant that I've had to sort of kind of put my aesthetics through a specific lens, um, and, and find ways to make that authentic because no matter what I'm doing I always want something to feel so familiar like you you've had it before like your great aunt or your grandmother made it for you but and yet it feels really fresh and new um so I almost always end up going to books if I need to invent something new I'll I'll look at um you know, Italian cookbooks. I try to find ones written in Italian because all I need is the inspiration initially. Um, I can always kind of translate things later. Um, I will look at um, when this dessert emerged in history and what, wh- who was it served to and how has it changed and what are variations we kind of accept around the region and what do these things have in common. So I do a lot of uh, really sexy Venn diagrams. <laughs> and, and then I usually end up in the garden because I always want herbs and something very fresh and wild to be on the plate. Uh, and from there, I look to the season, um, to what produce is available right now. So having had like a context and a structure uh, and gathering something from my wild environment and then something from the farmer's market, um, I usually end up with something on the plate. I think texture is actually kind of the last thing I think about, uh, which I might be weird for as an American, because as a, Americans were obsessed with texture, specifically crunch. Um, but I like, I've always liked things really simple. So for me, like having a perfect, like rice pudding with silky whipped cream on top and a little like, uh, cherry sauce, like those are all soft and I don't feel the immediate need to like, oh, well, a perfectly composed dessert must also have like a crunch element or something here or there. Like, I think that you can celebrate softness. So there's many ways to approach it. Um, so yeah, I think that's sort of how I go about things. I'm a big nerd. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you do it with respect to history and that that and then sense of place, like bringing the history, and then like you said, you get into the garden. So it's not just this historical, you know, ancient thing, but it's something that's very. It belongs where you're eating it, but it also makes sense where it came from. I like that so so much. I think that instinct for me comes from the fact of this being something that like I've come to later in life and it's certainly in terms of other people sort of at my level in the industry who like, this is what they've always wanted to do. This is the only thing they've ever done. Um, I do feel like an outsider. I think like so many of us struggle with like imposter syndrome and like thinking, you know, enough. And so history and context, I think is a way for me to like get firm ground, uh, in something that I haven't done before. And, I think it's also so exciting because at the end of the day, like food is supposed to tell a story. And if I want my dish to be successful, I think it needs to be able to join in that story, Um, which doesn't mean it has to like always adhere to tradition because I think there's something also innately in me that just like wants to buck at some of those like rigid old rules, but you, uh, you know, you can't, you can't break those rules unless, unless you know them. So I get a little story time and then I get a little dessert time. 
And speaking of ingredients, you recently posted a picture of some loquats, which I'm obsessed with. What did you end up doing with those? Um, I have so far been eating them in my pajamas, Jeremiah. <laughs> <laughs> They're so delicious, right? They're so delicious. I I love them. I used to gather them as a kid. Um, I'm surprised that like, um, I mean, I guess because I'm like walking my dogs for hours these days around the neighborhood, they're so happy. Um, I'm noticing that like my neighborhood is just overwhelmed with loquats, uh, trees, and I just hadn't seen that before. Um, and uh, I've been largely wild foraging for them with the approval from the homeowners from six feet distance. Um, everyone seems really like excited to like share things. So like I'll bring some oranges and trade and, you know, the barter system is alive and well. Uh, but I don't know what I'm going to do with the loquats. I feel like every time I get like a nice good stash of them, I just want to eat them. So like they never get made into anything. Do you make something with them, Jeremiah? They're very traditional in the Azores, Portugal. And um, we make jam. And then mm. that ja- the jam becomes, it's almost like quince paste or quince jam. It turns really pink and um, very floral and lovely. And, and it's, you eat that with cheese, like usually a very fresh, oh. mild cheese. So good. Oh, and then they also cool. make um, liqueur out of it. And that's really special too. It, it really, the flavor kind of changes from its fresh flavor to um, something different and kind of magical on its own. But wow. I rarely cook with them either. I mean, like we're just eating them because they're such a treat. And so I understand it's usually when I'm in Portugal that I'll buy the jars of the jam and take them home so I don't have to do it myself. <laughs> yeah, well, what a labor of love because for right. anyone who hasn't had a loquat before, like they're not a lot of meat in each one. They're big, big seeds. seeds. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, maybe the answer to this is loquats, but what are some ingredients or flavors that you think we'll be seeing more of in the future? Ooh, that's a really good question. Like, I loved your cake recently with sumac and with rose and raspberry. Like, that, that, ooh, that's fun. Oh, thanks. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've been, like, I, I realize that I'm sort of a spice and salt hoarder. Like, when I travel, that's all I want to take back with me are, like, satchels of spices and different kinds of salts that have been infused with herbs and or like herbs I put under oil. I don't know, like some mad scientists, like those are my favorite, um, takeaways. And so in this time when, um, you know, we're not trying to shop as much or go out as much, I've been really sort of, um, deeply organizing, uh, my pantry and I'm a pretty organized person already, but this has been like a a real chance to like catalog everything I've had and find things that I've hoarded over the years, like dandelion root and like chicory and the sumac and these different like wild herbs I brought back from Lebanon. And, um, I recently, uh, competed on chopped sweets and, it was hilarious experience because everything in the baskets that we opened, which are supposed to like be gross or really throw you, I was so familiar with (laughs) 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 from like fermenting and the other contestants like weren't, but then the pantry that was full of like pastry chemical stabilizers, I was so confused by. (laughs) Right. And everyone else was like, oh, thank God we have these. I was like, what do those do? <laughs> so, I mean, like, I I am always, like, a very natural and back to basics and exploratory, like, flavor-wise baker. And I think it will be really cool because if I'm going deep into my pantry, that must mean people are also and it's unlikely that you have these stabilizers and things that you might buy if you're like oh well i want to make this once um you're gonna have to start figuring out like in this time like how to make multiple things from the same things in your pantry which will empower you and give you tremendous creativity and innovation um and 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 new 
flavor combinations. Um, so I guess my, my takeaway from doing that competition was that, uh, like I can make dessert out of anything. <laughs> like, it's just about like, you know, divorcing your idea, like directly from what the ingredient is, like putting it in your mouth as if you were a child and like really rediscovering what elements are, are there, you know, like dandelion root is so bitter, but like when mixed it with chocolate, it's like, so beautiful. Um, so I hope I see a lot more sort of strange and new, uh, combinations coming out, but I also like know just from my own, like the orders that I'm rolling, I'm seeing roll in that like chocolate is king and will always be king. <laughs> so definitely, definitely chocolate. Um, I, I hope to see more expressions of people's culture um again as they like maybe are quarantined at home with older relatives and they start to learn um family recipes like my my girlfriend Sasha who um you know Amanda of course uh she is a former pastry chef of squirrel she's out in Palm Springs right now with her aunt and they are cooking up like tons of Armenian feasts and Armenian cookies and uh, I think that um yeah, I hope there's a lot more like individual historical and contextual and familial celebrations that we see in pastry and savory alike. I love that. Is there some wisdom that you, that you feel like professionals know that you could pass on to bit home bakers, something you'd like them to know? Mm, I think that, uh, especially in this time, uh, everybody fails. Like, even someone who's been doing it a million times for 10 years still has a cake that doesn't rise, still has a buttercream that splits, still has a bread that has something weird they can't explain. That like anything in life, sometimes things are not in your control and, and that's that's okay and that's good and that, that unites us. Um, I'm seeing so many people like disappointed that they're trying new things right now and baking, especially bread, and they're feeling disheartened and it's like it's everybody. It's not, it's not just beginners. Um, so just try, try again and use more salt than you think in everything. <laughs> I love that. Those are my, everybody fails and use salt people. <laughs> I love that you didn't say measure your ingredients before you start. Cause I feel like that's the, the tip that every professional likes to say. And I'm like, we've heard it. And instead you gave us this, this gentle and then technical tip of salt. <laughs> so, um, okay. So you mentioned Sasha and I definitely want you to kind of do a little, commercial for you guys doing your lives on Monday. You've been doing a live with her every oh, yeah. Monday. So tell everybody about that. Um, so every Monday at around, um, I think we're going to switch to, to nine just to make it easier. Um, every morning, every Monday morning at 9am, uh, Sasha Pillagian, the former, uh, pastry chef of squirrel and here in LA and Lou out in, uh, Nashville. Um, she's back in town in Palm Springs and we are doing a, a live hour where we answer any baking questions that people have, whether it be literally about how to bake, about the industry, where it is now, where we hope it will be, where it has been. And then we always end up talking just about sort of, uh, you know, coping during this times, things you can do, our thoughts on different things. And it's a very open hour that has become um, just lovely for the people who show up and certainly lovely for me and Sasha. So I hope that um, people keep coming with their questions and, you know, sending us DMs of their projects. Um, it's been a really cool way to connect. And we've been learning a lot from each other too, because uh, baking is so unique to each person, even though there are rules and ratios and methods, um, the way you approach things, your entryway, um, what it means to you can really shift your perspective. And so um, spending so much time with a dear friend of mine discussing those things has been a gift and also hearing from so many people in the gallery has been cool. So yeah, join us Mondays at nine live on Instagram. We're on Sasha's handle, which is at sashimi one. 
And then because everyone is baking sourdough right now, like literally it feels like everyone, what do you like to do with your discard? Um, so I, I hate calling it discard because I feel like it's so beautiful <laughs> on its own right. <laughs> Let's rebrand it right now. Yeah. What's, yeah what's I, the new I, term? I've been trying to think of a better name for it this whole time. Um, what did you say, Amanda? I was like, what's the new term? What can it be? Like your sourdough... Uh, gift with purchase. It feels like a, a, (laughs) I used to work retail. You did too, Jeremiah. So like it's the GWP of sourdough. (laughs) It's the bonus. It's the bonus. Um, so I, I'm a big proponent even before like, you know, ingredients were short because I always try and keep in mind that like right now ingredients are like short for us in a really real way, but ingredients around the world are precious and in hard supply. And so like, it's always good to sort of be in this mindset of like using things as, as, as well as you can. Um, so my approach usually with sourdough is like to do that, uh, to do a little math backwards, like, and only build up to what I, I know I need, um, and otherwise maintain like the teeniest, teeniest amount in my fridge. Yes. Um, there's still going to be a little, um, bonus along the way. Um, and I, I basically do it. Um, if you are going about to make bread, uh, and so your, your, your starter, your leaven is really fresh and it passes the float test. Then I'll use that discard for anything I want leavened. Um, even if it's not the main leavening, like I can put that in, uh, tea cakes. Um, and if they don't have baking powder, baking soda, I just let them sit out overnight and they rise. So like, that's how I do my sourdough banana bread. It's 12 hours overnight and then into the oven as normal. Um, or I'll put them in like a pizza dough because I don't need the most oomph from it, but I know it's active. If my discard bonus isn't passing the float test, then I love to put that, um, which means it doesn't have air. So it's not gonna, it's not in its power to really leaven powerfully. Um, I'll put that in pie dough. I put that in pasta dough. I put that in, um, uh, cake? Why am I blanking? <laughs> I put that in my garden. Um, and, and, and what I get out of that is a little bit of its fermentation power, even though I'm not getting the leavening power. And I love putting sourdough, um, in pasta. I let it sit out for a couple hours. It does balloon a little, and then I punch it down and roll it out. I find the pasta is silkier and springier. And I know that I have some benefits from fermentation. Um, the biggest thing I've been enjoying right now, which actually was inspired by my friend um, Caroline Schiff uh, in New York, is to just pour your discard immediately into a like ripping hot uh, pan with a little oil and then put anything you want on top of it and make basically like a savory pancake uh, on the fly. Um, the scallion pancake has sort of like taken over many of my friends' IGs because of this practice. Um, and it's just, it's so delicious. And even if you don't think your starter discard has anything in it, when it hits that heat, it really bubbles and becomes like crispy and amazing. So some, those are some of the many things that I'm, I'm doing, uh, with the discard. Um, the last one that I showed on red bread's feed was to actually take that discard and then, um, dip shrimp or chicken strips in it. And then fry those off because the discard becomes like a tempura batter. So that one's really fun for a savory take. That's genius. <laughs> and then you're also doing, you're doing bread lives too, because we mentioned the ones with Sasha, but you're also, so anybody who wants to go deeper on this, you're doing a live, are you doing it weekly? I'm doing it weekly now. So we had a, uh, I did a daily one at 4 p.m. of um, building a starter. And those are all available on um, the IGTV page for at Red Bread on Instagram um, to build a starter from day one through day seven and like talk about its health and sort of define terms. Um, and now that I'm going to start doing more projects and stiffer starters and gluten-free starters that 
have longer time periods, just a day in terms of their growth. Um, I'm going to be doing them like weekly or twice a week, depending on what the project is. So I usually announce it on uh, my page at T Rose Lawrence, my name. Um, and uh, yeah, they're usually at 4 PM and we just hang out and we talk bread and I answer questions and I try my best to show you different techniques and provide you with recipes. So a lot of those recipes can be found at red bread already. Um, and then adding them as fast as I can. Amazing. Wow. You are such a gift to us, to the community. Uh, thank you so much for all you do and for spending this hour with us. Oh my gosh. It was my pleasure. I wish we were all in the same room and I could hug you. <laughs> I know. I know. I miss oh. you so much. I just have to selfishly say that and just tell you, like, I want to hang out with you so much in person. So I really appreciate you just doing this. I felt like I got at least a dose of you, which is just always magic. And I, I just appreciate you so much. And like you said, call your friends, tell them that you love them. I love you. And, and I'm glad to hear your voice and, and just to have this moment with you. So thank you so much. Oh, I'm going to cry. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. It's so nice to hear everyone's voice. And I can't wait, Amanda, until you and I can paint together again. And Jeremiah, I can see you in person. Yes. I likewise heard so much about you from Amanda. And I just feel like we'd have so much fun. I know it. I know it for sure. Well, have a wonderful day. And we'll continue this conversation again. Like we're having her back, Amanda. Done. <laughs> Done. Yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> be sure to subscribe to Flower Hour on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you're enjoying your time with us, leave us a review. We'd appreciate it.